Welcome to BFR Radio, a podcast dedicated to all things BFR. This podcast is proudly sponsored by sportsrehab.com.au, where if you want to buy your own BFR cuffs or you want more information about the type of training or you just want more information, this is your one place to go. And I'm your host, Chris Gavilio. Welcome back to this month's episode of BFR Radio. Thanks for joining in. Today's podcast, I'm actually going to get straight into an interview with Tony Lewis. I'm not going to review an article today, partly because during our conversation, it was just jam-packed of great information. In particular, I got Tony on to talk about BFR and ballet, but he actually talks about some of his own private clients and some of his own training with BFR, which by the time we got to the end of the podcast, it was actually quite a bit of information. So I'm always conscious of how long these podcast go for and I thought that uh, article review would be best left for another time. Before we get into that interview and a small little product update with my own BFR cuff set, my Sports Rehab Tourniquet, I'm in the process of changing over the valves and the connections and the tubing which is I think quite exciting. It's taken me a while to get there. There's a, a few other products that have these same sort of interconnecting valves and doesn't necessarily make the product any better, but I think it just completes it off and it's just a nicer finish. Therefore, that change will be coming over pretty soon. And if you have the older style cuffs and you're interested also in upgrading your valves, I'll also find a way of making that available to you as well. It's quite easy to change them over yourself. Anyway, so the podcast today, as I said, is Tony Lewis. We're from the same hometown in Air in North Queensland. And a couple of little things to explain when we talk about in the podcast about the town that we live in, it's a small country farming town. There's actually another gentleman that we refer to called Matt Ham. He's another trench coach based in Brisbane, and we all know each other from the same place. And I think that's quite unique that three blokes become strength and conditioning coaches, move to Brisbane in the same town. Very unique considering if you ever visit our wonderful hometown of Air in North Queensland, you realize that it's probably not the mecca of strength and conditioning, but it's quite a good sporting little area of Australia. And also through the interview, we discuss many great things that Tony does with blood flow restriction. But what I've actually found with the interviews that I've been doing is, is that once I stop recording and we just have our general conversation at the end of the podcast, some of the information that actually comes out of it is quite is actually quite good. So I deliberately kept it rolling. And what I'm going to do is you'll find that we'll close off the end of the podcast. And then I'm just going to let the audio roll for a bit because some of the information that he went on and, and discussed a bit further in more detail was really interesting. And I think value adds to the podcast. And so I just kept it on at the end there. Hope you enjoy this one. Look, there's lots of great information out there. And I think once again, talking to people like Tony really illustrates the good work that people are doing with BFR out there. There's a lot of great strength coaches that have, I guess, take what people think is quite a complex training tool and implement it using some really great case studies that Tony's going to do today. Hope you enjoy this one and I'll see you on the other side. And welcome back to How You Do BFR, and I'm pretty excited today. I have got a fellow Air North Queensland boy, Tony Lewis, with me. Welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be here. As always, when I meet anyone from North Queensland, I met someone this morning at my son's soccer and she was from Mackay. And the first thing I said, oh, do you know the Gavilios? And she didn't. But, you know, I think you always got to put that out there. So Tony works with, within ballet. He's a strength and conditioning coach. He works with general population, lots of different sports. But I thought he really brought a really fantastic angle to this podcast in particular around ballet, a, a sport that, you know, I work a lot in, in track and field and and the meathead world of rugby league and football and so forth. And so then also when I knew that it was another fellow North Queensland strength coach, I got pretty excited. There's another, we talk about six degrees of separation. It's probably about one or two here, but there's another SSC coach, Matt Ham, that we're um, both mates with. So he connected us over some BFR and it's been a been a nice introduction for me it's great to obviously have these good conversations. So I thought it was a great opportunity to get you on the podcast. So j just to get started, you bring a really unique background to strength and conditioning. I think anyone who has a sporting background really brings a unique skill set. So let's just start, just tell the audience a little bit about your background in sport and then, and then how it transcended into being an SNC coach. So like any kid growing up in a country area, I, I was um, into every sport there was. And then uh, suddenly I, I came upon ballet, which is pretty odd, but I went into it because of I was doing karate at the time. And there was a guy there who I noticed was improving. So I went along with him and said, right, you know, I'm gonna, if you're improving, I'm going to give this a crack. One thing led to another. So I was 16 when I started dance and then uh, got accepted down at Melbourne to Australian Ballet School and then went on to have a... 15-year international career as a professional ballet dancer. My path from there into strength and conditioning came purely because I'd, I'd ruptured my ACL. And uh, so it was part of, while I was going through rehab, I just wanted to get a better understanding of what was going on and how, how I could do the work myself rather than having to always be going to the physiotherapist, you know, three, four times a week. And uh, so I just set about doing it initially a Cert 3, Cert 4, and then just continued to learn. And uh, from there, it, I went out, worked in the gym situation, did that for a number of years, grew tired of that, and decided I wanted to do things my own way. And it was when I started my own business, I was approached by a couple of dancers who were with the Contemporary Dance Company here in Brisbane. And uh, so from there, the interest of working with dancers really grew. So that's now led me to where I've been the SNC coach for the Queensland Ballet Academy and for the Queensland Ballet for the last six years. And that's pretty much it in a nutshell, Chris. <laughs> Yeah, so going back to the dancing, starting at 16, I'm assuming that's traditionally quite late. Yeah, yeah. And then in terms of, I guess, the, the training for that, because this is, intrigues me, because when I, the few times I've come out and, and watched you work and uh, watched some of the training and you enabled me to, to watch some performances, and they're just great athletes. You know, I just look at their, A, their physique, but when they perform, their ability to jump, absorb force and, and move is just fantastic so just in terms of my stereotypical view on ballet training is it, it's quite intense it's long hours mm -hmm. in terms of a little bit of background around that but then 
you know, and then I think also I think of Pilates and I know you talk a lot about the use Pilates as quite a dominant training modality in ballet. And I guess some of the early training on what you may be doing. Yeah. Working with dancers, it's primarily, you've got to rem- remember it's an art form. Therefore, you know, choreographers you know, want dancers to create certain shapes, be able to move in certain ways. So that's something which I've had to you know, when doing the strength and conditioning side of things, you have to really keep that in mind. And that's probably where Pilates became more of a, I suppose, a dominant modality with dance, is that it mimicked a lot of the movement and it was a way in which dancers could could strengthen through some of the dance-specific movements that they do. So introducing dancers to a weight room has really only been a recent thing. So probably maybe in the last last decade. So it's there's a few barriers which we've had to cross to get uh, companies and dancers alike involved in it. But that's probably been the biggest journey is uh, just getting getting dancers to understand that this is going to be of benefit to them. It's not going to hinder them. Um, it's not going to affect how it looks. I'd imagine that you'd have a lot of misconceptions. One would be I'm going to get big and bulky. Yeah, totally and slow and lose yeah, my flexibility totally. there's all that all the usual things that occur you know as we we see with general populations you know you're especially with uh women you know there's that worry of if they're going to be lifting weights they're going to get huge they're going to and that happens a fair bit with within dancers there's been that concern that the girls are going to put on muscle that they don't need and and they'll lose that mobility that they have so it's been a very slow, slow road, but we, we keep putting one foot in front of the other and we're slowly educating dancers and, and choreographers and directors alike. Royal Ballet has done a lot of work. They've probably led the way and along with the Australian Ballet Company. So they've probably been working on the strength and conditioning side of things with dancers for the longest period out of any of the companies in the world. And it helps when they put up footage of a dancer who's weighs 48 kilos coming back from an ACL and she's back squatting 100 kg. So you're going, well, she hasn't changed. She's just got stronger. So that's always a real plus for us. Well, for me anyway, when I see something like that, I want to push it out there and say, hey, look at this. It's not going to, uh, strength training's not going to affect you. It's just going to make you better. As always with a cultural shift, that that's just extremely hard to do. And, and we spoke earlier just offline about, you know, the small wins, having one or two successes with it. And then I think just over time, you know, if I could regress a little bit, I remember when GPS units first came out in rugby union and in the UK, we weren't allowed to wear them during a game. And, you know, people were shying away from putting them in their vest before training and, and they joke the saying, oh, you know, see if I'm slacking off. And now these days they just take them, stick them in the back. They now play games with them. It's, it's very common. Yeah. So, but it just takes a long period of time to, to change that culture. Yeah. And there's always going to be one or two who you hear the sprinters out there in the world that, oh, I don't do weights and they're a low 10 or a sub 10 runner but they're an exception to the norm, I'd assume. Yeah, and look, the truth is even within ballet, there's a lot of dancers who who don't do weights. They basically go out, they go, well, if I want to be a good dancer, I'm just going to dance and I'll work on what I do in the studio. And that works for them. But there's others who have found that, yeah, okay, their jump's not good enough or 
for the males in particular, you know, a lot of these guys have never been in a gym or have a very low training age. So they're struggling, you know, so with partnering, so a lot of overhead lifts, they need to get in the gym. We've got to get that strength there for them. And the last thing the audience wants to see is a male dancer struggling to lift a ballerina above his head. Big thing there is getting them in, realising that that's where it plays an important part in their careers. With your current role and the athletes that you work with, do all of them do weights, do a portion of it? And how many sessions a week and, and what kind of session length are you looking at at the moment? With the academy, I do two one-hour sessions a week. So, And that's with about 10 guys all at once. Uh, we've got much better resources than what we, we had once before. So we, we're able to sort of get them through that space. COVID has sort of been an interesting situation for us as well. Yeah, so I do two one-hour sessions with them. So for the academy, it's really them learning the lifts and then progressing them slowly through that and just getting some resilience into their bodies. With the company, it's a different situation. They do that by choice. So I'm in there. I do about three, four half-hour slots. And so basically the dancers come in, warmed up, ready to go, and I just put them through this, through the session. And that's male and female that I'll work with with the, the ballet company. So other days they will also do Pilates. These are athletes that are dancing six between six and eight hours a day. So we've really got to monitor their load. So you may see a dancer one week, but then you may not see them for another three weeks because they're their load is just so massive as they're coming towards a season or whatever. It's little things like that that trying to, to get a consistency with, with the athlete is um, it's not always easy. Yeah, sounds like a, a real challenge there because of their workload. And I know we did speak briefly about how to manage workloads when they're already doing quite a lot of dancing as it is. Mm. In terms of strength training for ballet, sounds like you really need to cover the basics or yeah. the basis of all lifting fundamentals, which I sometimes think in terms of all sports that you need to learn to crawl before you walk. And even in track and field, it's the basics. You get the basics. I say to a lot of younger coaches, they say, what do you want the athletes to be able to do when they come to me? And I say, if they can single leg squat well, if they can do a ten, three sets of 10 push-ups, yeah. move well with the bar, that's all I need to do. Because I tend to get a lot of athletes that I'm spending time teaching them how to lift again, uh, as opposed to that high-end performance. In ballet, is there anything that you found that works really well? Look, again, I, I think I, I go back to working with the academy. I think that the temptation is these young athletes are highly coordinated. You can give them anything and they'll make it look right. <laughs> and yep. the most complicated movement, They'll, you'll look at it and go, well, that looks fantastic. But then you break it down and you go, just do a simple squat for me. And then suddenly all the gaps appear. You know, you're suddenly seeing, oh, oh, actually, there's not much dorsiflexion going on in the ankle there or, you know, you're a bit unstable through the hips. So it's usually going all the way back to basics with these guys. And it's interesting, but once they nail the basics, then they just go ahead and leaps and bounds. And I find with them... That's the hardest thing is once they've nailed the basics, it's then a matter of trying to keep pace with what they're then able to do. You know, because they're so good at mimicking movement, you've got to make sure that they're not getting ahead of the game, so to speak. 
Yeah, definitely. Fascinating. Well, uh, do you do much test physical testing with ballerinas? Not, not so much with the company dancers, probably more so with the academy. So we'll look at velocity. Uh, that's probably the main thing that I'm looking at, especially with the men, is um, like I said, when they're on stage, the audience doesn't really want to see the process they go through to jump or to get the girl above the head. So they just want to see the, the actual end result. So for us, it's yeah, very much about you know getting that, that lifting speed and being able to really sh- shift weight quickly, whether that's their own or someone else's. That's probably the main thing that we look at is their, their velocity scores. So we'll do that yep. with um, you know pressing and, ju- and squats and stuff. I'm just intrigued. Vertical jump. Do you do any vertical jump at all? I'd imagine that they'd be quite good at it. Yeah, yeah, we do vertical jump. Although, again, I, all I'm looking at there is because each one, each dancer jumps at different heights. And for me, again, it's just looking at the, their velocity scores with that. I don't actually measure their jump height okay so what we're looking at is you know because they're, they're all going to be different and they're ex- funny enough they're extremely competitive even with velocity scores they're all sitting there you know everyone's trying to outdo each other so my concern is if we start looking at jump height we're just going to have <laughs> people just yeah end up hurting themselves trying to get as high as someone else and and that's a really nice way of fashioning it rather rather than going like sometimes even in bench pressing, rather than going to one RM, I'll just use submax velocities and yeah. some of the track and field athletes I work with. And that just shows the improvement within themselves as opposed to going, well, how much are you lifting versus how much am I lifting? Yeah, um, totally. Which once again, yeah. problematic. Yeah, it's a nice, really nice way of, of looking at it. And I guess the, uh, the individual changes as opposed to changes between. Yeah. So I got you on the, the podcast actually talk about BFR and when you got me to go to the ballet that time, that was actually the first time I'd ever been to ballet and I, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it and just enjoyed watching them move and probably put the, the coach lens on and just been able to be really supple with how they move. We'll get on to BFR, but I, I wanted to get a bit of an idea, probably more selfishly, while I had you on the podcast to, to just get an insight into that world. This is a great way of coaches out there and athletes about how they use BFR they, the first time they got introduced to it and a couple of little case studies or, or ways that you incorporate it. And I think as we spoke offline, is that I think the beautiful thing about BFR is, is that the simple stuff which we tend to sometimes overlook in just in general coaching is the best stuff and there's absolute gold in this. So I'm going to hand it over to you and tell your story on BFR. Well, I first sort of was introduced to it through the guys at Hammer Athletics. So that was Dan Messer and, and Matt Ham, who we'd mentioned earlier. And uh, they were using it, I believe it was part of German volume training that they were using it in. And uh, so I went away and, and played with it a little bit and I saw it as... The way I approached it initially was, oh, this is a great way to finish people off, you know. So it was just to get that pump and be absolutely flogged at the end of a session. It started to spark a bit more interest. I thought there's more to it. So I got chatting to Matt, and that's when he made the introduction to yourself. And uh, so I went and got um, a set of cuffs from uh, Sports Rehab Tourniquet and uh, and then, uh, yeah, <laughs> then went and uh, contacted the plug yourself. There, mate. Yep. Yeah. yeah, thank <laughs> you for the plug. <laughs> That's all right. 
so yeah, and then from there I started to just play with them, and and again it was initially I was just using it as that as that finisher type thing, and and then I, I thought well I should go and actually go and meet Chris and have a chat about this, and as then I started to realise hang on there's a lot more to it, and I started looking at it then more from a rehabilitation point of view, and and probably as an initial way to introduce some progressive overload to people, so. I worked initially with a, a one of my own general population clients who had had a uh, hip replacement, and uh, we'd been working for a little while, and I, I found he was still suffering some atrophy in in the leg that he'd had the uh, hip surgery on. So I thought, oh, well, from what I'd been reading and talking to yourself, I saw that there was benefits there that there, we could get some hypertrophy happening within the quad, and the leg in general. So I, I started working with him, and uh, I suppose. And the initial protocol I used was uh, your social media protocol. So the three minutes on, one minute off, and uh, nice. I was doing doing that with him just just to basically get him used to having them. And then from there we moved into just walking around. And then after he was used to that, I then introduced squats and everything into the program. So we saw him over a period of of six weeks. I think I'm I'm trying to remember. He gained probably about one and a half centimeters on that quad, so wow. which we're really happy with. He was ecstatic, you know, because now he looked in the mirror and his legs were the you know similar size. So, so then it probably would have been about six months later, maybe I'd I got to work with one of the dancers who had just had spinal surgery. So the big thing there was obviously we couldn't do any axial loading. Followed that similar protocol with him, and uh, we were getting. Really good results. Did the whole social media thing. Got him then walking. Then had him. We were doing split squats and so on. And just each week, I would just turn up the pressure a little bit more on it until we got him to I think it was about 140 millimeters mercury pressure. And once he was sort of happy with that, then I started introducing weights. And unfortunately, then we had the COVID lockdown. So we've uh, we've back into it now so we've now got him front squatting at about 60 percent of his one um, rm and again with the cuffs on at 140 we're seeing really really vast improvements in him since we've returned post covid each week is making huge improvements so that's why i've seen it it's been a real benefit yeah it's, it's mainly from that rehab point of view so if we compare the two if i've got this right you get the gentleman with the issue with the hip brought yep. it in at a point where nothing was really budging, nothing was improving, you weren't getting the results that you wanted to. And then all of a sudden, just with the use of it passively, or ischemic yep. preconditioning is another word, you had yep. it, it, all of a sudden, so just using it passively, could he notice a difference? Or could both of them notice a difference? Yeah, well, I think that the initial feeling was that they could feel that pump in the muscle. and for the gentleman who had had the hip replacement, I don't think he'd ever felt that at any point in his life or, you know, it'd been a long time. So, but for the dancer, he was like, oh yeah, I remember this feeling, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, a, yeah. And, it, and it made him feel really good. So he, he loved it. He straight away was like, yeah, give me more of this. With the gentleman that had the hip replacement, we took a little bit longer at first for him to get used to it. But then once he, once he got used to the concept and the whole idea and where everything was heading, 
And then we start, when we started to see that there was changes in circumference of the leg, that was the, the buy-in for him then. As soon as he saw there was a change, that's where he was like, okay, let's go. So Yeah, and before I dig deeper into the ballet dancer, with the gentleman with the hip, one thing that BFR is known for is actually joint and tendon pain or, or decreasing mm -hmm. this pain. Was there anything around that that he experienced which enabled him to want to exercise? At that stage, we'd... we'd pretty much got he'd pretty much got through those pain barriers um, okay yeah so that there probably wasn't so much from the from the pain point of view but what we did start to see through the use of it was actually improvement in joint range of motion you'd probably be able to give the reasons as to why <laughs> that occurred better than myself i think chris but you know it was just that was that was something probably the first observation was that suddenly he was he was actually getting deeper in his squat. And I'm there thinking, well, there's got to be limitations that that new hip is going to be creating. But he seemed now he's pretty much squatting to full depth. Well, that's great news. Mm. I think sometimes with that, I don't think I've got an exact answer for you, to be honest, but I think more from a simplistic point of view, and this is some of my own thoughts with my knee, is that you decrease pain, so you feel like you want to move. Everything gets activated which typically when you're injured and you have inhibition you just things just don't switch on so things aren't sitting in the right spot you know a lot of people talk about the feeling of it's warm it's supported so you as a result of the muscle activation you you can now feel like you can safely achieve a depth yeah as opposed to if things are a bit grumbly and a bit sore your body's great. It just says, no, nah, I'm not going there because something's not right. So everything's just working a lot more efficiently. And there's none of that huge mechanical stress or that huge load going through your client's hip or through his back into his hip. That's um, it. So you can actually then achieve the greater range and you just naturally, it just feels good. I mean, yeah. I know you've done some BFR yourself. Yeah. Well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head with... Um being supported i think that was that was the term he used he actually felt that they supported him while he was moving and that possibly gave him a little bit of reassurance that he was going to be okay while performing the different exercises so yeah that was probably the bit the big one was the the fact that he felt supported by by wearing the cuffs yeah and then moving on to the dancer uh, he's had surgery as opposed to the gentleman with the hip who was kind of brought in later on yeah. Was it a decision as soon as he had the surgery that part of the rehab process? And then how soon post-surgery did you implement it? So we probably would have been 12 weeks post-surgery we implemented. And then we probably worked with him again for, oh, would have been maybe eight weeks. And then that's when we went into the uh, COVID lockdown. But in that eight weeks, I'm like, that was the thing. He was... Well, he had buy-in from the very first day because he just went, mm. oh, this, I loved, he just loved having that, that feeling. And again, it gave him confidence. And I think it was probably, I imagine anyone that's had spinal surgery, and especially as an athlete, you'd be thinking, am I ever going to get back? Am I ever going to get the, that feeling again in my muscles? And I think that the fact that he could actually get that feeling in his muscles by wearing the cuffs, it's given him the confidence to go, hang on, yeah, I, I can get through this, I can make it back. I think that's that's given him a lot real push in the right direction. And so since returning post-COVID, 
he's um yeah he's really sort of embraced it and is taking it on so yeah we're every session you know we've got the cuffs on and I think also I've spoken to a few other colleagues who I have a, a good friend who coaches a, a quite a young sprinter and he's a naturally strong person, but he's actually, I think he's not even 21 years of age. So he uses moderate, just above moderate loadings with BFR on. And there's only been really one paper that I've read at the moment that's used 70% squatting. And so the way he sees is rather than going 80 or more so 90 plus percent of RM, without the cuffs on and actually putting that extra stress on his spine, he said, well, let's just bring the load down a little bit. And he knows that he's still got high loads, which is, I think is still important for athletic populations. Load is, I say it a lot, load is still king, but he just tops that that 10 to 20% of RM up with the BFR cuffs and the athlete is still performing really well. So I think that's a really nice way of, until you, you make that decision save with your dancer that you might go well he's performing exceptionally well without putting that extra 20 kilos on his back yeah and as a result of that he has more energy for his other dancing as opposed to you have that that tendon soreness the joint you know you know when you lift heavy yeah. weights you're just really sore so you can actually get around that yeah and that's probably the avenue that I'm, I'm starting to look at in regards to the dancers is it's exactly what you were saying there is of trying to avoid that joint and tendon soreness and muscle soreness and everything going, especially when they, their job is they're dancing all day. And so getting that working them at 70% 1RM, putting the cuffs on so they boost it up a bit more without having that high load on their backs and on their spines. That's something which I'm now starting to look at a bit more, probably looking at how BFR can assist uh, not only with rehab, but performance itself. Yeah, and I recently, through the whole COVID shutdown, I experimented on myself. I deliberately limited weight that I would lift, but did all the, you know, everyone was doing isometrics. So I thought I'd get yeah, on the isometrics yeah. bandwagon. I did my 40 kilos maximum weight, because most people can handle 40 grab weight around the house. Yeah. Uh, bands, isometrics, BFR. And one thing I noticed is that the next day I was ready to train again. I was like, you know, I'd get to the weekend, I'd get to Sunday going, I feel kind of like oh, I need to get back in the gym. I feel like I haven't done anything. Now yeah. I'm currently doing that version, but lifting heavy loads. Right. And I get to the end of the week and I'm kind of smashed. Like I, yeah. I'm exhausted. Like I'm, I'm really yeah. tired from exactly the same program, but using real head, well, for me, heavy loadings, which is, is still pretty good, I'd like yeah. to think. So <laughs> I then always think, except for say someone who might be like a rugby union player, football player, maybe not so, because you know, they need to go and play and they get doms or soreness from playing, but so like a shot putter who may want, or a weightlifter who may need to lift heavy loads. But you yeah. know, a lot of people who have they have a high skill demand and obviously dancing really comes yeah. to mind. Do, do we then say, well, we're still getting an athletic performance benefit. However, they got more juice in the tank to go and dance. And at the end of the day, I would imagine that they don't care how much they squat. They probably care how well they jump and dance and land. I would assume. Oh, that's it. It's, it's, it's all about, can they, can they still do their job? 
you know, and that's that's the one thing that I, you know, we always have to be really cautious of is that we're not sending a dancer into the studio, not necessarily that day, but the next day where they've pulled up sore because we've done bucket loads of squats or whatever the, the day before and they're, and they're absolutely smashed and they can't move how the choreographer wants them to move. I'm like, so then they come to me going, well, what are you doing? <laughs> you know. Yeah. So it's... <laughs> So for me, I'm looking at a a, a way of deflecting blame, <laughs> yeah. so, but uh, or avoiding it, I should say. But uh, and that's the thing is just looking at for me now. The interest is how how we can improve performance without making them sore as to what you would normally get, like you said, from say rugby players and so on. And the thing with dance is we don't really get a preseason or anything like that where we can really really get stuck in it's uh you know they get four weeks off a year they come back and straight away they're into prep mode to go into their first season and then once they start that they're, they're probably already learning another two or three other ballets at the same time so yeah it's, wow uh, always on the go yeah you're ducking and weaving and you're trying to you know make adjustments so you may be doing a, a classical season which is going to be followed by a contemporary season which has got very different demands on the dancers so you've got to be aware that you don't start, say, going into a contemporary season, you especially find for the males, there's, the lifting is very different, a lot more sort of ground-based, and it puts much larger demand on them. And their bodies do change. You tend to find that they'll actually put on a little bit of muscle going into that. But yeah, right. you've got to be careful that you don't actually hit them with that too soon because they're still in the middle of a classical season where they're expected to look a certain way and perform a certain way so it's um yeah very much trying to find that balance all the time and that's where i think bfr can can certainly assist in that way that we can get the strength required for an upcoming contemporary season without the bulk and everything that may come yeah i didn't even realize that within different seasons the body shape changes yeah, yeah. It's not drastic, but it can be enough to, you know, suddenly go, oh, hang on, what's going on here? They've lost that that look that we wanted for this particular ballet. And costuming as well, that can be frustrating. If suddenly a dancer's lats are a little bit bigger and their, their jacket's not fitting them as well as it was, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. and that can, that can, the bodies can change. Some people don't change so much, but you get others who whose bodies can really sort of morph into whatever they're doing at that time. That's a great example. I think there's even some stuff around increased markers of bone reformation. And I always think, I don't know if when the person had a spinal injury, whether it was bone or not. Yeah, it was disc, disc related. Disc. So he, yeah, okay. yeah, so he's had a, a prosthetic disc put in. Oh, okay, right. But there's lots of interesting components of BFR that assist with either bone or just healing in general, create that nice anabolic or that healing environment that traditionally is hard to do with little or no weight. So I think it's re really nice that you've taken it to something that they can happily do. You know, as we spoke about the social media protocol, three minutes on, one minute yeah. off, you know, three to five sets versus when you look at literature, it's five minutes on, five minutes off, five times. That's a long time. That's 50 minutes. You know, oh, exactly. Yeah. I don't know who's got 50 minutes spare to be uh, pre-session to be doing something. No, and, and like I said, I, that protocol is more to just get them used to having the cuffs on. You know, yeah. Once they get used to that pressure, then we just get them moving with them. And actually, that was something that you did say, which I wanted to highlight 
uh, I think is fantastic. I've spoken to some people recently when they've used BFR and they find it uncomfortable or they don't have the positive experience. And, and when I tend to implement BFR for the first time, I do exactly what you do. I introduce it slowly because I think of it as a brand new training stress. We don't throw someone into five sets of five. We, we slowly increase the loadings, we appropriate sets and reps. And, and I do exactly what you do over a period of time, a minimum of two weeks, I will take them up to the pressure. So I'll start around just under 20 mils of mercury, and then I'll, I'll potentially do an intermittent, so inflate, deflate, and then depending on the protocol after two weeks, if they're happy, I'll then try and get them to, to be where they need to be. However, if they're finding it uncomfortable, like all good training programs, they're a guide. And same with the training pressure yeah. that you calculate, it's a guide. And I think what you've done there, and, and when you did say that, I was, I was really happy to hear that because if all of a sudden we'd calculated it to be, let's just say it was 140 and they pump it up and they find it uncomfortable, they have a ne negative experience and they say, coach, I just don't want to do it. And then you've lost that potential opportunity and you've started off yeah. passively. So they're comfortable with it. And then you've said, right, let's start introducing a little bit of movement, really simple. And then all of a sudden you've got the buy-in, which, which that's half the battle sometimes with any sort of, you oh. know, I'm assuming just the buy-in for strength training, let alone adding in another modality it has its challenges again. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and that's it. It, it it is, I think uh, we're in a world where there's so many different gimmicks and stuff out there and, uh, you know, and, and you probably get it, people coming up saying, oh, have you seen this, have you seen that? And so people are, are willing to try different things, but I think, you know, the reality of some of those things is, is quite different. And so something like BFR, as you're saying, if we do the, the proper calculations and you go, well, yeah, we've got to put you at 140 and hit them straight away. I think you'd probably find a lot of people would balk at using it again. And it is, it's, it's very much getting that buy-in. And I think that's with any any sort of modality, you definitely have to just slowly, slowly go through it. Yeah, so well done on that. And anyone listening, that's a great way of starting it. It just exactly as, as you've done there, Tony. So really happy to hear that. And I know you do a little bit of BFR yourself, you have seen it on some of your posts. What do you feel your favorite little add-ins or routines that you would add in your own training that, you know, you could recommend for people out there as well? Probably in my own training, I'm, it's, um, you know, I'm 52 now. So, uh, the body doesn't respond very well to, uh, <laughs> to the high load. So I tend to find that now I'll use it more as a, a top up. I'll be working more at 70, 80%. And, uh, then when I want to push, I'll put the cuffs on. So I may do a session and like at the moment I'm just playing around. I don't know if there's any real theory to it, but, uh, you know, I'll do a normal, normal session at about 70, 80% of my one RMs. And then the, when I repeat that session later in the week, I'll do the same, same weight, but I'll wear the cuffs. And what I've found over the last couple of weeks, I've actually been getting some good increases in my weight. I'm actually finding that when I go to do this session without the cuffs the following week, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for more weight. So I found that a really interesting thing. I, I, at some point, I'll hit an end point, but at the moment, I've, se I've seen some really good progression there. The other one I've been doing is, I was just reading some stuff. Uh, I'd actually seen you wearing the, the cuffs on the bike one day doing a warm-up, and, and it was a, a couple of weeks ago, it was a 
quite cool and wet and I normally go for a ride on a Saturday morning and uh, so I thought oh, I'll put the cuffs on and I, I was just doing two minute intervals because I knew I'd get pretty warm wearing the cuffs and uh, I thought oh, there's got to be something else to this so I went looking and I found a little bit of literature that, that they'd done some testing with cycling where they'd seen improvements, aerobic improvements, you know, so better capillarization along with hypertrophy. And uh, I'm not a big bloke, so I'm always looking forward to <laughs> trying to find a bit, a bit of extra muscle if I can. And so I've been playing around with that, doing a protocol where it's um, five repeats, two minutes, two minutes on, one minute off, then a five-minute rest, then do those sets and reps again of the five by two minutes. So I went out, I rode with a mate last weekend and he was um, he normally towards the end of a ride, he's the one that's flogging me up the hills and uh, we switched places. So I thought, oh, there might be something to this as well. Yeah, so I'm, oh, look, I'm always playing. I'm always trying to find something that seems to be working and then uh, I tend to try it all out on myself and then pick a victim. Yeah, that was a really good paper actually, that the cycling paper. And they also compare that to a combination of high intensity yes. plus low that the low BFR, but just in terms of, you know, there's a lot of athletes out there that do that low intensity, low threshold type work, whether it's running or cycling or yeah. rowing. And then I just sort of start thinking, could we be smarter with how we train our athletes when they're doing their, their low intensity work and actually give them less yeah. work, but get more bang for the buck using something with yeah. cuffs. Yeah. And, and that's, that's probably where I'm heading. And, and with, with my own training, and like I said, being conscious of how my body pulls up. And it's probably something which I think with the clients I train range from 15 years of age through to 75. So I'm sort of looking at where that can be used across that whole spectrum and, uh, and, and of what benefits it's going to be you know, using at the younger age and at the benefits for those older clients. And being, well, as I said, 52, my focus at the moment is probably more on the, uh, on the older end of the of the spectrum, but um, that's probably yeah, where things are at the moment for me. It's just looking at how how I can keep people with getting that feeling like they're training hard without without them yeah. pulling up the next day going, oh, you know, I was really sore here or, yeah, and just, just going through that at the moment. And, and now looking at also the fact that there's, there's some evidence around you know, cardiovascular benefits mm. there, so... I think also two other ones, as I mentioned earlier, hormonally in, in aging populations, our endogenous natural circulating levels of testosterone mm. drop as we get older. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of evidence around the positive benefits of testosterone, not only from performance, but just being able to maintain or stop the decrement as much in aging populations. And the other one's bone density, especially in yeah. females. But once we start heading more to the extreme end of the aging population and they can't the normal way of stimulating bone is through through high yes. stress loads and they can't do that they can't expose their bones to those kind of loads so being able to put some cuffs on do some light resistance training ride a bike go for a walk it's easy you know they're already going for a walk and obviously as you're getting older as well yeah. like like myself and yeah you know, sore joints is is a is a big thing yeah kind of gets around a few components there as in a potential added modality or added tool. I always say it's a, it's a tool on toolbox. You still need a good coach and a good program. I think that's fundamental yeah, there. Yeah, totally, totally. And, and look, it's, it's something which I know 
not everyone that I train is going to um, embrace it because I, I know even just with some of the more basic things that I introduce there's a, a little bit of, you know, oh, really, you're going to make me do that? So I think if, <laughs> suddenly if I'm putting cuffs on some of my clients, it might be a, a, a different story. But, um, yeah, there, there are those who, who are willing and, and I think for some others who if they start to see that there's benefits I like to think my business, we've got a very close community and a lot of interaction between clients. So I think if they start to see someone else that they know that trains with me is looking better or improving in, in what their day-to-day activities, they might then go, well, hang on, what are you doing differently? Probably mm. go, back, going all the way back to even myself, you know, seeing how a guy I was doing karate with was improving because he'd gone and introduce this different form of movement or training and so that's that's why i see this as well yeah yeah definitely you need to pick and choose the right modality for the right person at the right time and and you alluded to you know we spoke a lot about the ballet but you do have a studio where you you try and private clients um just a little plug for there where's that and just things that you're working on in the next uh, few months so, yeah, I have my own business, so I operate from home. I'm fortunate to have had a, a decent-sized shed in my backyard that I converted a bit over 10 years ago. So people come to me. It works really well, so if no one shows up, I just go grab a cup of tea or whatever and I'm good. Yeah, my, my main focus going forward from here is obviously just trying to improve the health and well-being of the people I get to work with and then, of course, with the the ballet company it's um and the dancers it's just trying to help them be the best they can be educate them on the benefits of training and especially training in the gym they've got really busy schedules but just seeing how just by 30 minutes here or 30 minutes there is actually going to benefit them in the long run my day when i was dancing we didn't we didn't really have any strength and conditioning as such we went to gym but it was some bloke just handed us a sheet it was three sets of 10 away you go boys that was it <laughs> you know and uh <laughs> yeah. and then yeah and that that was it you know and we just went and had a good laugh and that no way was it serious training what we did Whereas, sure. you know now it's a, a bit more focused and the dancers now are, are actually a real athletes you know and as we refer to them as artistic athletes so yes yeah. tony works out of Tarragindi, brisbane queensland australia so that's where his studio is based very jealous you have a shed <laughs> in the backyard yeah. most man's dream i would imagine so definitely hit him up if you want any more information he's well organized here his instagram facebook and twitter they're all at tony lewis pt and what I'll do is obviously in the notes here, I'll, I'll put his contact details. I'm also going to put his email address as well. So being a North Queensland boy, he's even a better bloke than normal, um, like myself. Nah, good plug there again. But um, he's obviously training from a wide range of athletes from 15 through to gen pop up 75 plus. Uh, he's in this tree. He walks the walk and talks the talk. And I'm sure that if you have any questions specifically how he used BFR or if there's anyone that wants ballet specific work, I would imagine that um, he'd be more than willing to have that conversation and let you take it from there. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, so thanks for your time, Tony. All the best for the rest of the year and thanks for your time again. Thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure.
as promised, we've got to the end of the interview. And this next little bit here is just the end of the conversation that we had that I thought was quite valuable to actually add into the podcast and really completes the picture a bit more. Hope you enjoy this little conversation that we had after the podcast. The spine one, and even like your, your hip, like they're great. They're the examples that, mate, it's just gold. Yeah, to be honest, well, a lot of that stuff, it's, it's, I guess I've, I've tried to find research and there's probably not a, a lot that I've found. I'm like, you may know of more, but I've sort of gone, well, what makes sense? There's probably more where I've, I've mm. taken things. And so to me, it, that's, yeah, it's just what made sense to me. Sometimes something's going to work for one person and it may not work for another. Yeah. And that's just the way it is. You know, we're all built differently. There's, it's like back in the day uh, when I went through college and stuff and, you know, you're teaching to people to squat. Well, we had everyone trying to squat exactly the same way. And then someone went, oh, hang mm. on, we're all, our hip joints are all a bit different here. So we can't have this person who's, you know, the, the head of the femur sits a little shallower and the pelvis can't have them sit, squatting the same way as some of these sitting deeper, you know, so... That type of thing is at some point someone's gone off on their own and gone, well, squatting like that doesn't work for me. There's got to be other people out there. Yeah, yeah, for that's, sure. That's the way I sort of see a little bit of what I do. I am like, I start with a skeleton and try and flesh it out and sometimes you go in the wrong direction and sort of have to bring it back and head it a slightly different way and... Yeah, like yeah. you said, sometimes there's literature to support it, other times there isn't. So it's just, that's where that, I suppose, that little bit of creativity comes into the industry. And uh, that that's what's appealed to me over the years is the fact that I can still be creative, <laughs> you know, to a degree. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I think it's important. Yeah. Only if there's anything yeah. that you think of and you want to sort of touch on again, I'm, I'm more than happy to. Sit down, you know, sure. if there's post. I'll get you in for another one. Yeah. We'll get Big Matt. <laughs> well, well, what I was thinking you'll, we should you'll do You'll just is have I'll to be on the beeper a... the whole time with him. That's the only thing. I'll either edit that one out or I'll beep it out. <laughs> but um, I was actually thinking I should get him because he did the practical BFR using just the wraps. Yeah. And, and I thought that'd be pretty cool because he gets away from like, you know, I'm about using pressure yeah. and how you use pressure, but he's using it in a really, practi really practical way cost-effective applied yeah. manner. And, and see, that's how I, I pretty much started was I saw they were using the wraps, the knee wraps, and that's what I do. I went off and bought myself a set of knee wraps and was just started winding them around my legs and seeing how that went. And I think the first exercise I, I used them for was hamstring curls. And, you know, and I was doing, I think I did three sets of 15 and I was screaming my head off for the, <laughs> for the last set. And I got up and went, like my wife's looking at me like, oh, you're bloody crazy. But I got up and went, that was good. <laughs> so <laughs> people ask me about that, you know, the fact that I've come from up there in, in such a small place, really. They find it bizarre that someone like me has gone off and had the career that I've had. And I've turned around and said, well, you know, there's, I'm not the only one. You know, there's Kari Webb. There's, you know, I start naming all these people that have gone on and, yeah. and done all this stuff. And they all go, Wow, and I said, yeah, actually, I think if we if we did it per capita, airs probably produce more athletes than anywhere else. So, yeah, we do we do all right. Yeah. Um. So was Greg Stockham your teacher? Yeah, Greg taught me. So yeah, 
Yeah, yeah it, it seemed to have like a produce like it was a pretty good school, wasn't it? It was a good, yeah, it was a good school. The thing with Greg is that he had some good contacts elsewhere. So Neil Walker, he was based in Townsville. And that's who, I, on a Saturday morning, I'd drive up to Townsville, do three hours of training up there and then drive home. And uh, so Neil had yeah. actually taught a lot of male dancers that had gone on to professional dance companies. And uh, so I would do two classes a week with Greg, a class on a Saturday with Neil, and that's what I did for my first 18 months. Uh, and then I got offered a place down in Melbourne. When I got down there, it was like unheard of. Everyone else had been dancing since they were four. And this kid who's 16 rocks up, you know. And I found I had a natural gift for lifting. So <laughs> built built my yeah. career around that, basically. So, yeah, being able to, being able to lift girls. So, so like going up to Townsville, you know, that's... Yeah, that's cool. That was going, that's to, cool. going to the big smoke, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I used to go up every Friday night for athletics. Yeah, yeah. It was a great little town as a kid, you know, if you were yeah. into sport. Oh, you know, 100%. Because you had everything, you know. So, you know, there's um, growing up there, I loved it. I did, but I couldn't see, I couldn't see a future for me there, you know. That was the thing. Well, not dancing, you know. Well, well and, was, and not, not, not really the industry that you're in now, like... No, um, no. And yeah. the truth is, I'm like, I had no idea what I was going to do when I was finishing school. I think I was looking at going into Defence Force and I thought, oh, yeah, a PTI, that'll do. Yeah. I'll, I'll, go and, yeah. I'll go and do that. I've kind of come a, around to that original thinking, you know. So dance was just something yeah. I did in the middle. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Helped form the journey along the way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Interesting, wow, I've enjoyed this. has been good. Yeah. And that's all today for this episode of BFR Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to take part in the podcast, please contact me through my website or on social media channels at Chris Cavillio. For more information and to order a set of your own BFR cuffs, please visit my website at sportsrehab.com.au. Thanks for listening and keep the pump.